The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within a yard of hell. Uh, Let's begin, though, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now, if you flip over to chapter 19 and verse 10, I'll give you a second here. <clears throat> Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, if you flip all the way over to chapter 24, beginning in verse 27, Luke says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now skip down to verse 44. Luke says that he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed. With power from on high. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Amen. Uh, Join me in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you would come and speak to us. Give us your spirit. But I confess on behalf of all of us in this room that we are uh, weak and utterly incapable of hearing from you without your help. So, Father, please come and give us your spirit. Help us to hear from you. Give us strength to respond in obedience as we behold the person of Jesus according to the Gospel of Luke. Pray that you would do this and then some and trust you to do so. In Jesus' name, and everybody said. Hey, look, the Gospel of Luke um, could be summed up in a word. The word would be certainty. Everybody say certainty. certainty. You might say a different. Might say certain. 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 That could be one way of remembering what the Gospel of Luke is about. It's about certainty. So I want you to think with me for a few minutes about that word certainty. Think about the certainty of the Christmas season. What things can you be certain of? What things can you count on during Christmas? For instance, we can be certain we can count on uh, getting together with friends and family to celebrate the holiday. Our family just got together last night. 
uh, with some of the rest of our extended family members near Omaha, and we ate way too much shrimp, and uh, shrimp is part of our meal always, historically there. Too much turkey, too much ham, and you know, we were just stuffed by the time we came. So you can, you can kind of count on things like that, maybe getting together with some family, eating way too much food, possibly, uh, giving, receiving some gifts. Um, I was thinking the other day that we can count on that movie, The Christmas Story, right? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Uh, you can count on that movie being on a few different channels on repeat for 24 hours or more. And I love it because I love that movie. It brings back feelings of nostalgia from when I was a kid dreaming about my first Red Ryder BB gun. Um, so you can count on that. You can count on Christmas music playing everywhere you go. We uh, stopped at the gas station on the way to our family um, get together yesterday, and uh, my wife was laughing at me as we walked out because I was seeing, I was whistling, I think. I was whistling to the tune of whatever Christmas song was playing, and I hit a part in the tune where I totally forgot where the rest of the song went, and I just abruptly stopped. And she just kind of looks at me and shakes her head, and I can't take you anywhere, Joseph, type of look on her face. And it's true, she can't, and she probably shouldn't. Um, I'm sorry that she married me because it could be kind of embarrassing sometimes the way it goes. You can count on these things. You can count on Christmas decorations everywhere you go too, right? There's a lot of things you can count on. A lot of things you can be certain of in the Christmas season. And sometimes I think for me, the way that I look at it is I, the, the certainty of those things during Christmas to me is like a breath of fresh air a little bit because, you know, we live in a broken world. Uh, we deal on the daily with things that are completely uncertain, don't we? Things that we cannot count on. Um, you think about it, we live with this uncertainty every day, these kinds of uncertainties. Our, our health can take a turn at any moment, right? We're not certain. We're not promised any more moments than the moment we have right now even. Um, friends can betray us at the drop of a dime. Loved one can pass away overnight. Um, Job security, honestly, for all of us is an absolute mirage, isn't it? Don't we know that instinctively deep down inside? Um, financial stability. Financial stability, I think, for, for most of us feels like a, a teetering pile of wooden blocks all kind of placed in, you know, like that Jenga, the Jenga game. Is that what it's called? Jenga? Jenga? Like that game. Pull out one block, run, and it all crumbles. Emotional health. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on of the things that you and I cannot necessarily be certain of. And, and that recognition, the, the uncertainty of this life, the uncertainty of this broken world that we live in, this is what makes Luke's gospel so refreshing, okay? It, it's like a fresh drink of water in my mind. Uh, for, for our lips that might feel a little bit parched um, by all the uncertain realities of this broken world, if you look at some of the opening um, words that he says as he opens the gospel, right? He actually says that he wants to write an orderly account for his friend Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is a name that means one who loves God. So there's lots of arguments as to whether he, uh, Luke actually wrote this for a specific person named Theophilus or whether it's just a title for some imaginary friend who loves God. There are others who believe there was a man named Theophilus who was a Roman that actually hired Luke to write the Gospel of Luke and that he actually paid for it. And, and it's all possible. Who really knows? At the end of the day, we know he's writing 
to somebody named Theophilus, and that means to someone who loves God, which begs the question of all of us, do you love God? He says that he's writing to one who loves God so that he could what? Why is he writing? He says in verses 3 and 4, he's writing so that Theophilus, this person who loves God, can have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. So you think about that phrase. He's saying, hey, bro, I want you to be certain of what you have been taught, of what you have heard, what you have learned. But the question for us when it comes to biblical interpretation is, okay, then, what is it that Theophilus had been taught? What had he learned that he needed to be certain of? Now, it seems likely to me that Theophilus had been taught this very simple principle, and this is what I think the main theme and the main, if you were to boil Luke down into one semi-short phrase, I would say that I think Theophilus had been taught that Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost through his life, his death, his resurrection in fulfillment of the law of the prophets and the Psalms. So if you get nothing else out of this sermon by the time we're done, that's the core thought. That is the the bullet to the bullseye, so to speak. Uh, I'm hoping that you're going to hear that sentence over and over and over. I'm going to read it for you one more time. I think it's on the screen probably. Yes. Um, It is is a beast of a sentence, right? But it's important for us because we're going to break some of this down as we walk through. I think what, what Luke, as he's thinking about Theophilus, he's saying, Hey, yo, bro, I want you to be certain you, of this thing you've been taught. You've been taught that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost through his life, his death, his resurrection. And all of that happened in fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So if you just take a close examination of the first two chapters alone, right? These are chapters that oftentimes get preached uh, over the Christmas season, but you just look at the first two chapters alone, those two chapters reveal a number of characters who testify, so to speak, to the certainty that Jesus is this one who came to seek and save the lost in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Those two opening chapters, chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Luke, we see Gabriel, we see Mary, we see Zechariah, the angels, Simeon. We see all of them speaking of Jesus' arrival in a word that I use, that's used oftentimes in books, and it's called salvific terms. Everybody say salvific. Salvific. What that means is saving. Um, Saving terms. All five of these characters describe Jesus this way. Uh, Gabriel, chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, he instructs Mary to name her son Jesus. Now, the name Jesus loosely means deliverer or rescuer. And then Luke follows that instruction, or Gabriel follows that instruction, by describing Jesus as the Son of the Most High, who will what? He will possess the throne of his father David, and his reign and his kingdom will never end. Now, there's so much packed into all of that. You can go back into all the lineage and the history of King David, sinful man that he was, but a man after God's own heart, and God comes and makes a covenant with him and says, hey, yo, bro, your, your family, your dynasty, your, your throne will never end because I'm going to place somebody on that, somebody from your family tree in the future, and that person is Jesus. Mary, 
Mary's another one, right? Verses 49 through 55 of chapter 1, Mary um, describes the birth of Jesus. And she describes the birth of Jesus as an act of the almighty, holy, merciful, powerful God who does what? Well, he scatters the proud. He knocks the mighty off their thrones. He lifts the humble. He fills the hungry. And he sends rich oppressors down the road. That's basically what Mary says. In Mary's estimation, when you read what she sings, in her estimation, God, God is one who out of his deep mercy and in complete accordance with his promised salvation, he is the one who is seeking to help his people by simply saving them. Now look at what Zechariah says. Zechariah follows all this up in verses 68 through 79 of chapter 1 when he prophesies something. Uh, His prophecy regarding Jesus describes Jesus coming with these kinds of phrases. Verse 68, he says that Jesus is going to be the one who redeems his people just as God of old redeemed his people. Verse 69, he says he's the horn of salvation that we've all looked forward to. Verse 71, Jesus is the one who, like God of old in history, saved us from our enemies. Moves on, verse 74, delivered us from the hand of our enemies. Um, Verse 77, when you look at that verse, Jesus is full of the knowledge of salvation and offers forgiveness for sins. Look at verse 78, Jesus is the sunrise who is going to visit us from on high. Finally, verse 79, Jesus is the light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now look now at the angels, verse 11 of chapter 2. When the angels announce the coming of Christ to the shepherds, they describe Jesus as what? The Savior who is Christ the Lord. Finally, look at Simeon in verse 30 of chapter 2. When Simeon blesses baby Jesus and gives thanks for his birth, guess what he says? He says, in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's literally saying, the salvation of God can be visually seen in the person of Jesus. So the significance of all these five different characters in the first two chapters, stepping forward and testifying, culminates in the theme of salvation. Or you could say, the Savior, right? In other words, these speakers, when they speak, they're speaking, they're testifying of the Savior who is coming, or the Savior who has come to provide salvation. <clears throat> now, if you flip all the way forward to verse 10 of chapter 19, right? And you, you read that story of Zacchaeus. And I won't hang out too long on We're going to come back to it later. But you go to that story, and most scholars would say, that this verse alone, if you wanted to get down to the central nugget of the certainty, right, it, it, it is this verse. That verse that says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That verse binds all of chapters 1 and 2 and really the entire book, but it binds it all together. helps to underscore um, one author who notes this he says that the title that best sums up the themes of jesus humanity and compassion as luke is none other than the title of savior you can be certain that jesus is the savior that's what luke's arguing for now it's interesting now 
If you flip all the way over to the very end of of Luke's gospel, um, the last passage we basically read at the beginning here, you flip all the way over to chapter 24. What you'll see there is not only does the front cover of the book, you might say, the first couple of chapters that we've just examined, and then all the way down into the central heart of it in in chapter 19, verse 10. Now you come all the way out to the the end of the book, and you're, you're looking at the back cover, Back cover being the last few chapters of the book. That back cover drives home this certainty. You might say, what certainty? The certainty that Jesus is the one who came to seek and save the lost in fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, right? That's what the back cover tells us as well. Chapter um, 24, you look at verses 13 through 35, and you do an examination of that quickly. What Luke is doing is he's recording this account of two disciples who were on this road to a place called Emmaus. And they encounter the risen Christ. Those two disciples are walking along. They're discussing their, their bewilderment over the things that they have just witnessed and experienced. Right, These recent events of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And they're taking this seven mile hike, if you will, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they're walking along discussing these things, Jesus shows up. And Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then furthermore, it's interesting because he winds up joining those two disciples for a meal in Emmaus. And Luke tells us that their eyes were open and they recognized him. Now there's an interesting fact that happens in there. The moment when they recognized Jesus is when he broke the bread. Something kind of significant to that in terms of our practicing the Lord's Supper. In that when we break that bread, there should be a recognition of who Jesus is. That was the moment that they recognized him. And in that moment, when they recognized him, he vanished from their presence, right? Leaving them to return to Jerusalem to share what they had witnessed with the rest of the disciples. You see that in verses 28 through 35 and 24. And Jesus then, in those moments, he reappears to all the disciples, verses 36 through 49 of 24. And when he reappears to all the disciples, he shows up and he questions their unbelief. Yo, why don't you believe? What's up with your lack of belief? He shows up in that room. And when he does that, he further underscores his own explanation by his own words, his own argument concerning his own life, his own death, his own resurrection. And he says that all this has happened in fulfillment of the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So there, we've just walked through the entire book of Luke. 19 minutes. We left a lot out. (laughs) All we've done over the last few moments is drive home what the central thought is. The thing that was dominating Luke's mind as he wrote. And in all of this, what Luke is doing is he's simply persuading. He's using what we would call rhetoric to persuade. He's explaining. He's literally using what we would call apologetics. So that we can be certain of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So that his readers might have their eyes and their hearts and their minds open to understand and to believe the certainty of Jesus as our Savior. Uh, One author, uh, in speaking about this, he highlights everything when he says this. He says that Luke's 
use of the Old Testament, if you're to think about it, could best be summed up this way. Could best be summed up as a prophetic, not pathetic, okay, prophetic and Christological use. And I love that word Christological. Christological means Christ-centered. So he's saying that Luke's use of the Old Testament is best summed up as prophetic and Christological. In other words, all of the scriptures point to Jesus and therefore must be fulfilled by him. So, well, we may not be certain of many things in this life because this life is uncertain. We can be certain, according to Luke, once again, Jesus is the one who did what? He came, why? To seek and to save the lost, why? So that he might fulfill the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now that's all fine and dandy, but the next question has to be this. Who in the ever-living heck is Luke? Did you ever think about that? Who is Luke? Why should I even trust this guy? Why? Like He says we can be certain about things. Who cares? Right? Who is Luke? Well, church historians, church history, pretty much unanimously attributes the writing of Luke's gospel uh, to a man known as the Gentile disciple. Uh, this would be Paul's beloved physician, um, identified in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. So this would be Paul's personal doctor. How about that? Well, that gives you a little bit of... Um, no insight into the way that Luke writes when he writes so meticulously, like a doctor, paying attention to really fine details. I don't know about you, but I don't want a doctor doing surgery on me who's like, yeah, I'm not really certain if it's the gallbladder or not, but I think we should go in there and try cutting it out anyways. You know, the same goes with our eternal destiny, okay? I kind of want to know that if a dude's saying we're going to be certain, maybe he has the credibility to say so. And uh, he's a doctor. He's also Paul's companion for several portions of his missionary journeys. And you can find that from reading the book of Acts. There is a point in the book of Acts where the language shifts from they to we. And it's shortly after Paul picks up Luke. And when it shifts to we, you know that Luke is now ghostwriting for Paul and others, right? Um, Luke has been writing the whole time. It's just at that point it can shift to we because that's when they got together. Um. We also know that uh, uh, Luke, according to Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and 11, Luke is the only one who is still with Paul at the end of his life as he awaits his death in a Roman prison. Um, now he's also the same Luke who wrote the book of Acts as the second half of the Gospel of Luke. Did you know that? That's, to me, that's fascinating. Um, one commentator says that uh, Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts at the second half of his two-volume, chiastically structured account of the life of Jesus and the growth of the early church. Who knows what the word chiastically means? Okie dokie. We're going we're gonna to dive into that here in a moment. It's good, okay? It's good. Think chiasm. Everybody say chiasm. It's a weird word to say, isn't it? Does it make you feel weird when you say chiasm? It's just strange. Like, I don't even know what we're talking about right now. Is this a word I've never... Is it Greek? Is it Hebrew? Is it Aramaic? What is it? Um, this, I think, is a 
um, super cool point of interest for us as we think about the Gospel of Luke and his description of Jesus. If you look at the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as a whole, right, a, a two-volume book, and, and listen, there's, there's arguments from people in the world around us, agnostics, atheists, and others who will at times say, hey, look, yo, these people that wrote the Bible, they, they, were, they were largely stupid people who couldn't write or read or, or do anything with history anyways. And, and this is just one of those points when you look at this, you can be like, no, I don't know about that, bro. Like, these guys had to be pretty smart when you, when you see what we're going to see here in a moment. When you take the Gospel of Luke and you take the book of Acts, you take it as a whole, a two-volume book, what, what you're going to see is a very well-formed narrative. And it begins in Rome, it moves inward to Jerusalem, and then it moves back outward to Rome once again. And what happens in these two books, this is exciting, guys, what happens here is that it makes the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus the founding heartbeat of the church's witness. I don't, maybe I'm too excited about this, because I don't feel like you guys are all that excited. Y'all are like, hey, where are we? I'm still half asleep. Come on, this is real. I, I don't know, this is just me. Hey, listen, the story begins, right? If you look at the graphic on the screen, screens behind me, story begins in the beginning of Luke, right? All the way from Luke chapter 1 to Luke chapter 4, the story begins with Jesus being born in the context of Roman rule. That's the ends of the earth, so to speak. Starts there. And then the story begins to move inward towards the heart, right? This is chiasm, okay? Chiasm begins out here and moves in. Or it begins here and moves in and then moves back out. That's, now everybody knows what chiasm means. Isn't that great? Okay? It's not Aramaic. It's actually English. It's good stuff. So the story begins there. And then it moves inward with Jesus ministering throughout the Gentile world in Galilee. So he's moving inwards towards Jerusalem. This is Luke chapters 4 through chapter 9. And then the story travels even further into the center through Judea and Samaria as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem, chapters 9 through 18. The story finally lands in Jerusalem in the center for the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Again, this is the heart of this two-volume book. And then you get into the book of Acts, and you're still in the heart, right? The church is being birthed in Jerusalem where the gospel of Luke ended. And, and, and Acts 1 through 7 uh, kind of moves back outwards as ministry in Jerusalem is happening. And then it continues to move more outwards into Judea and Samaria from Acts 8 through 12. And then finally the story travels all the way back out into the Gentile world throughout Galilee once again, and ends with Paul preaching in a Roman prison. So, from Rome, the ends of the earth, all the way into the center in Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem all the way back out to Rome again. And you might say, who cares? I'll tell you, I care. The reason I think it's good is because the heart. Don't you think? Like, that's what this reveals more than anything else. It's the heart. All in all, what we see in Luke's two-volume set is what I think is a masterfully written story that quite literally positions the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus at the center of the story. This is the idea of Christological writing. The heart of the story is Christ crucified and risen. Jesus moves into his crucifixion and resurrection from the outside boundaries of Roman rule. 
And then he moves out to the boundaries of Roman rule on this confession of Christ crucified, risen, and returning as his church gets sent from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, signified by Rome. So, all in all, what's Luke wanting us to see? I think Luke wants Theophilus, us, God lovers, wants us to be certain of the person and work of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. He came to seek and to save the lost in fulfillment of the law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms. Now, we could end right here, and you've got a lot of information to think about, right? Um, But in typical Merino fashion, we're not going to end right here. We're halfway through. No, we're a little over halfway through, just so you know. (laughs) It's not all, right? This is good. This is good treetop view, but there's more. Luke says more. If you could take this description of Jesus, right, this description that I've kind of been running through that's on the screen in front of you again, Jesus came to seek, to save the lost, in fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. If you took that main description of what Luke is trying, this main thought, and you created it into a coat hook, and you just hang it on the wall so that you can hang coats on it, I'm hoping this image might help us. It's a coat hook to hang a bunch of other coats on. And what Luke does from throughout the book is he hangs various coats on that coat hook so that our description of Jesus becomes more full, more complete. Luke, as a detailed physician, a doctor, he's not, he's not uh, content with just saying, yo, there's a coat hook. He, he wants to give us coats to hang on it. And each coat has a specific description. I'm going to run through them real fast, and then we'll come back and go through each one. Um, on those coat hooks, there's at least seven beautiful coats that he hangs on them throughout the book. Uh, Namely, that Jesus loves the outcast, he's the perfect savior, he's the best prophet, he's the teacher of parables, he's the risen exalted benefactor, he's the fulfillment of the law, and finally he's the giver of the Holy Spirit. One at a time, here we go, everybody say I'm ready. Ready. If you're not ready, say I'm not ready. Okay, well too bad, we're going anyways. (laughs) Coat number one on the coat hook. Jesus is the lover of the outcasts, right? Jesus is the lover of the outcasts. And you can see on the screen a whole bunch of scripture references for this. And can I just explain for a moment that just those references alone are just a few? They're not all, they're not, that's not an exhaustive study of Luke on the screen because it would fill uh, screen after screen after screen. But those are just some of the main ones that are worth reading under that banner that Jesus is the lover of the outcast. Now this principle, this coat, so to speak, this idea that Jesus loves the outcast is probably a fact that many of us really love about Jesus. Probably doesn't take us by surprise. But here's the thing. We often fail to grasp the true significance of Jesus' love for the outcast. On the one hand, we fail to see ourselves as a proper outcast. And on another hand, we fail to understand Jesus' love for some whom we would say are so outcast that they are beyond help. Uh, we toggle between those two often, right? 
Um, when Luke shows Jesus all throughout his gospel, loving on people like the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the tax collectors, sinners, uh, women are, 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 are a big part of Luke's gospel. And in that culture, that's a big deal. Uh, as well as the poor. These are kinds of groups that Luke highlights. When he does this, one commentator says that he highlights those who have, listen to this, flagrantly violated the cultural and religious norms of Judaism. Listen, the best way that I think I could bring this home is imagine right now a whole bunch of strippers come running in here from the strip club across town. Now I got your attention, don't I? And they come running in here and they start washing people's feet with their tears and their hair. And how many of us would be like the Pharisee in the story, like, I cannot believe you would let that woman touch you. Wouldn't it be most of us? That's one of the ways that Luke gets his point across of how well Jesus loves the outcast. Outcast. All in all, when you think about this principle, here's what you can rest assured of. You can rest assured, you can be certain, right, that you are never too far gone to be loved by Jesus. That's the truth of that. Second coat Luke wants to hang on the hook is this. Jesus is the perfect Savior. Now, we did camp out a lot on this certainty um, because it's the major theme. It's the coat hook. But it's interesting because it's the coat hook, but Jesus also hangs a coat on it. So, I, or not Jesus, well, Jesus does, Luke does, right? And so I think it's worth mentioning again, um, because I don't think we can ever get enough of Jesus as our perfect Savior. And I said earlier I wanted to focus a little bit more on chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus visits Zacchaeus, I, I think that we oftentimes don't get the sense of who Zacchaeus was. And I'm sure that I have a sermon out there because years ago, I think we took four years to preach through the gospel of Luke. And our people were like, please, Joseph, can we be done? It felt long. I mean, it was so rich, though, in my opinion. When Jesus visits Zacchaeus, um, we have to get an image for who Zacchaeus was. And as briefly as I can, here's what I would say. Zacchaeus is basically rotten, he's like a rotten little mob boss. That's what he is, okay? Uh, so you think of Joe Pesci, is what I've always said. You know, a short little Italian dude, yeah, I'm going to stab you in the gut, nah. Okay? That's basically who Zacchaeus was. He's this rotten little mob boss. He, 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 he was a Jewish man, okay? But he collected taxes for the Romans, the oppressive army, the oppressive regime, he collected taxes for them from his own people. Zacchaeus literally is a master of extortion. And he's a traitor to his own people. Okay. So think of the hatred you feel for somebody like this in your life. Don't know who that is, but... Luke shows us in that one little story that when Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost... Interesting, again, center of the story of the Gospel of Luke. And at the center of the story, where this one little coat hook is, is, is mentioned, where the main theme is built out, who does he use to, to, to illustrate that with? He uses Zacchaeus. The point is, is that when Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost, what he means by that is that his perfection is more than adequate 
for even the most despised sinners. And some of you here would say, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I see the most despised sinner. Don't you? Or some of us at least. Maybe not all. I know at times when I look in the mirror, I go, you are the most despised sinner on the face of the planet. And what this story is meant to do is to encourage us. It's meant to call us into the presence of this Jesus. The one whose broken body and shed blood was more than adequate enough for even the most despised of sinners. Nothing but the perfection of Jesus' shed blood. Nothing but the perfection of Jesus' broken body could ever cover the multitude of sins in Zacchaeus' life, or ours either, for that matter. What you and I can be certain of, Luke is saying, that Jesus is the perfect Savior, especially if he can save a wee little traitorous extortionist named Zacchaeus. Should look at coat number three with me, that uh, Luke hangs on the hook. Hangs it up. Jesus is the best prophet. It's another coat. Now there are some scholars who would note that Luke uniquely refers to Jesus as the best prophet. Uh, when Luke records in chapter 7 verse 16, there's a crowd saying that a great prophet has appeared among us. And that happens after Jesus resurrects a widow's only son who had died. Powerful story. Now Luke also in chapter 13 verse 33 records that Jesus actually does refer to himself as a prophet as well. And then all throughout the center section of Luke's gospel, which would be chapters 9 through 18, all throughout that central section, Jesus is simply seen as God's prophet, his, his messenger. His messenger who has come to warn a stiff-necked generation of its coming destruction and he's doing that even as they're in the midst of rejecting him as a messenger and then eventually murdering him at the cross of calvary the point in that whole section is that luke is absolutely certain and he wants you and i to be certain as well that we would do well to listen to jesus instructions we would do well to listen to jesus warnings why so that we might remain in his life-giving presence. Because here's the thing. To ignore Jesus' prophetic words in our lives is to certainly reject him as our Lord and Savior. That's a harsh thing, isn't it? To say, to think about. But it's true. To ignore Jesus' prophetic, meaning truth-speaking words into our lives, his instructions, to ignore those is to certainly reject him as our Lord and Savior. That is the sin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees all throughout the book. <clears throat> Those who were religious, so to speak. In the moment that you and I become religious, uh, we run the risk of rejecting Jesus' instructions to us, don't we? Uh, we find hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, of Western churchianity to make our excuses to ignore him. Not to mention the fact that we're just plain human and we love our own interpretation of the scriptures. Not to mention that we also are human and love to 
pick and choose what parts of the scriptures we listen to or reject. And in doing so, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, then as John will say next week, Jesus is the word who became life. That means that he is the Bible who became life. And to uh, ignore what the Bible says is to ignore what Jesus says. We ought not to be caught there, should we? Fourth coat uh, that uh, Luke hangs on that big main coat hook is this. Jesus is the teacher of parables. And you're like, yeah, I know that. Now, this is actually kind of interesting when it comes to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, One author points out that uh, 28 of the 40 passages most commonly classified as parables. So think about it. All the parables, there's roughly 40 of them. 28 of those 40, now zero down a little bit more, 15 of those are found only in the Gospel of Luke. Which means that Luke literally does have a higher focus than any of the other Gospel writers on the fact that Jesus taught using parables and stories. It's not a parables, okay? It's parables, stories. Parables and stories such as uh, the Good Samaritan, which we're probably familiar with, chapter 10. Uh, Parable of the rich fool, chapter 12. Or the rich man and Lazarus, chapter 16. Or one of my favorites, uh, the Pharisee and the publican, chapter 18. Those kinds of parables that Jesus taught in, they're they're all designed with very simple, very down-to-earth language. It's meant to teach these simple truths regarding things like who your neighbor is. That was a high-pitched squeal. (laughs) Hi, sweetie. Bye-bye. She's back there waving at me. (laughs) She's like, I got him. She did. Uh, Anyways, parables. (laughs) These kinds of parables, they're meant to teach us some things, right? Uh, primarily teach us simple truths about who our neighbor is, or how the love of money can be detrimental to your eternal destiny, uh, how humility is the desirable character trait for Jesus' followers. These are things that Jesus taught through those stories, very simple truths. Now here's the thing. The fact that Jesus is a teacher Doesn't surprise us, right? What I think should surprise us, kind of dovetailing off of the last coat that Luke hung on the hook, I think what should surprise us is that we fail so often to listen to his instructions. It should surprise us. You can ask just about anybody you meet, and they might even, the most staunch atheist or agnostic might say, yeah, if Jesus even did exist, yeah, he's probably a really good teacher. Most everybody agrees on that point. The next question is, is, then why don't you listen to him? You and I can be certain that Jesus' parables, they're, they're meant to transform our lives. And I, I, I would follow this up with one more last kind of thing on this point before I get to coat number five. And if we lack spiritual maturity in our lives, if we lack growth in becoming more like Christ, then the reason is because we have failed to listen to and obey Jesus' teachings. And they're simple. The parables are very, very simple. They're there for us to grow, to be transformed, and to live by. 
Coat number five. Coat number five that goes on this coat hook is this. Jesus is the risen and exalted benefactor. Now, the idea of Jesus being a benefactor um, really rests in his promise to reward his followers for imitating his life of servanthood. So you can look at uh, chapter 14, verse 12 through 14. You can look at chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. And you can see Jesus literally promising to reward his followers for imitating his life. Now, when you think about imitating his life, there's a lot there, right? Because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he alone holds the authority to issue those rewards to his followers for serving. And he does it without expecting a return, which means we should serve without expecting a return. And the way that Jesus did that, which means the way we do it, is by keeping our eyes focused on heaven. The Apostle Paul emulates this later when he says, not looking at things of this earth, but keeping my eyes focused on what's to come, the hope of heaven, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Right? We don't serve in this life uh, to make this earth a better place. Just get that out there. That's not necessarily the calling. Is there some inevitable fruit of serving well that makes this world a better place? To an extent, yes. Uh, But it's a very microscopic view if you think that's all there is to it. We don't serve in this life necessarily to make this earth a better place because, here's the thing, this earth is not our home, number one. Number two, this earth is headed on tilt towards destruction at some point where our Father in heaven will renew and make a new heavens and a new earth. So we don't necessarily serve to make this earth a better place. We serve in this life so that we can bring glory and honor to our crucified, risen, and returning king who rewards the faithful and also simultaneously punishes the wicked, which is a scary thing to think about, right? Many of us don't want to hear about the punishment of the wicked unless we're thinking about the wicked people that hurt us. But the reality is, you and I are both wicked. That's what we got coming to us if we don't know Jesus, right? So this is why we serve, is to bring glory and honor and attention to Jesus. And so I think that what Luke wants us to think about is that we can be certain that if we sacrificially serve those around us, Um, simply out of this uh, deep desire and motivation to bring honor and glory to God, then what's going to happen? We're going to receive a reward in heaven. In fact, that's some of the promises that the Apostle Paul writes about in his pastoral epistles for why you would serve in ministry, of which I believe every member within the body of Christ, every saved believer, is meant to have a ministry. And the reason that we serve is because... We're going to bring honor and glory to Jesus, and we're going to receive a reward in heaven, which will far surpass any reward you could ever get on this earth. The problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees all throughout these Gospels is they settled for their rewards here on earth. They liked their fat paychecks. They liked their Lamborghinis. They didn't have those, right? But you can see this in certain factions of Christianity today, can't you? Mm-hmm. Last coat, coat number six, um, Luke teaches us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Again, we saw this, we're going to touch on it briefly, 
Luke saw fit to hang it back up again on that coat hook. Um, One scholar says that Luke is actually very faithful to history um, when he reports how Jesus' first followers did not immediately break away from Judaism and its Torah, meaning the law. Um, You can see that all throughout the Gospel of Luke and even in the book of Acts. But one thing that Luke does emphasize is the fact that Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses instead of working to preserve it. So his intention was not to preserve the current iteration of it that they were following. His purpose was to come and to fulfill it. What he came to do was to fulfill the law of Moses perfectly. Listen, if you want to take the whole argument of all the law and the gospel, like should we ignore the law, should we practice the law, what should we do, yada, yada, yada. If you could take it and sum it up, here's what I think we would say. Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses perfectly on behalf of every sinner who cannot fulfill it, which is every sinner, because no sinner can fulfill the law. He did this so that he himself could be the sacrifice that is offered once and for all for the cleansing of that sin. So Jesus is literally, as a friend of mine, Mr. Michael, said to me the other night, Jesus literally is the decoder ring. You ever got a decoder ring that would decode all the codes? I never got one. It shows that I'm not as nerdy as I might think I am sometimes. But Jesus is the decoder ring that unlocks all of the meaning of the law. Okay, Jesus was always the point of the law. He performed it perfectly when he came. He was sacrificed for those who cannot perform it so that those whom he saves are now enabled to perform it by the power of the indwelling spirit. Uh, which leads me to coat number seven, the Spirit. Jesus is the giver of the Holy Spirit. Most scholars are quick to point out that Luke's gospel mentions the Holy Spirit considerably more often than in Matthew or Mark. Okay? And they also point out that the book of Acts can rightly be titled as the Acts of Jesus through Spirit-filled apostles. All throughout Luke's two-volume book, what we see is Jesus at first, and then his followers, filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaiming the gospel, and then even suffering as witnesses to the power of that gospel to save the transformed sinners into the likeness of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. So overall, the message of, of Luke and the book of Acts is that Jesus is the giver of the Holy Spirit. And he gives the Spirit to his followers because there is no substitute whatsoever for a Spirit-empowered believer boldly proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed. It's no substitute. Read all the books you want. doesn't matter. If you ain't got the Spirit, you don't know Jack. That's what it comes down to. You need the Spirit. All of us need the Spirit. So in conclusion, last few weeks, right, we've been asking, who is Jesus according to blank? Matthew, Mark, now Luke. And while Matthew and Mark do seem to give us some super beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is, um, Luke doesn't let us down either, right? According to Luke, we can be certain that Jesus is the Savior who came to seek to save the lost in fulfillment of the Mosaic Law, fulfillment of the prophets, fulfillment of the Psalms. And because that's who Jesus is, we can also trust and have certainty that Jesus loves outcasts. And Jesus is the perfect Savior. Jesus is the best prophet. He's the teacher of parables. 
is a risen, exalted benefactor who will reward the faithful. He's the fulfillment of the law and he's the giver of the Holy Spirit. My question as I came to this tail end of this sermon was, man, do I know this Jesus? You know what I mean? Not like, not like I don't know him, but there's portions of this that as I studied, I went, man, I needed to be, either be reminded of that or to learn that for the first time. And that's my question for you. Do you know this Jesus? Like, do you know what it's like to be so caught up in your sin that you are hopeless to find a way out? Do you know what it's like for Jesus to come and find you in the midst of that filth? Have you felt the love of Jesus for an outcast such as yourself? Have you come to the realization that he actually died on that cross for you so that he can save you? Have you experienced the words of Jesus penetrating so deeply into your heart and convicting you so much of your sin and calling you to repent and encouraging you to trust in his work at the cross and the empty tomb. Have you received the spirit of God at the moment of salvation where you surrender to him? And then have you also experienced subsequently as you walk forward the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit who then strengthens you To not only proclaim God's goodness with your words, but to also show His goodness with your renewed life as you actually wage war against your sin? Do you know this Jesus? Like this description of Jesus is not the sugar-coated, candy-cane version that the culture wants us to hear over the Christmas season, right? This description of Jesus is the one that begs us To surrender to the one who came looking for us when we were imprisoned by our sin. This description of Jesus points us to the one who loves the filthiest of sinners. He's the one who was determined to die in your place. He's the one who never stops calling out to you when you run away to the pig pen. He's the one who meets you at the end of the driveway with a big, fat smile and a brand new set of clothes and a party plan when you finally come home smelling like the filth of this world. He's not the one who walks up to you and hands you a a set of rules to follow so that you can get close to him. He walks up to you and he says, hey, yo, I'm with you. I'm doing this for you, in you, and through you. Here's the rules. Here's what it looks like to walk with me. He's the one who hands you a a declaration. At the same time, that declaration is one that says that you're not guilty of any past, present, or future sin. And the reason for that is, is because you've trusted, if you have, in his work at the cross. And in that moment, he promises to help you walk in renewed obedience to him by the power of his very own spirit that he places within you. This is the Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. This is the Jesus of the Gospel of Luke. And I wonder, do you know this Jesus that Luke says you can be certain of? I hope that you do. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Gospel of Luke. Thank you for this massive description of who Jesus is. 
And I pray, Lord God, as we close, that if there's any here who do not yet know Jesus, that they would in these moments come to know you. I pray, Father, for those who are in this room who maybe even thought they knew Jesus, maybe just arrived at the recognition that they never knew him. Maybe in these moments, God, you would save them. For those of us who do know Jesus, God, I pray that you would use this as a refresher and an encouragement. Help us to see you, to hear you, and to obey you. You are the Savior who came to seek and to save the lost, and you fulfilled all of the prophecies, all of the Psalms, all of the law. You did it on our behalf, and you died at that cross. Your body was broken, your blood was poured out so that we might draw close to you as you drew close to us. God, help us as we close. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.